0: This is Christian Knudsen and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. The UW system announced today that facing declining enrollment, the UW Platteville Richland campus will close at the start of the next academic year. All instructional programs will move to Platteville or Baraboo, though the UW's facilities in Richland Center may and offer enrichment programs or continuing education for adults, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. This news comes as the campus saw record low enrollment numbers this past year, with just 60 students attending classes on campus this fall. That's about a tenth of the campus's enrollment just eight years ago. The two-year campus administratively merged with UW-Platteville in 2017 in a move to keep higher education available to rural areas around the state.
1: A
2: lawsuit filed by Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call challenging the state's abortion ban is taking longer than expected to move through the courts. Originally filed in late June, the case lingered in the Dane County Court for months, reports the Associated Press. District attorneys in Dane, Milwaukee, and Sheboygan counties are named in the suit and have until February to finish filing briefs and motions. The case is likely to end up at the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which itself could change next April. Conservatives currently control the court by one vote, but that could change substantially after Justice Patience Rokensack retires and that seat will be on the ballot.
0: Madison's nonviolent first responder CARES program released an end-of-the-year report today detailing accomplishments in its first year of service. CARES launched in September 2021 and sends paramedics and crisis workers to select 911 calls instead of police officers. In its first year, the program dispatched teams to 935 calls, the majority of which were to be able to be handled on site. Only about 30% of the calls needed transportation for further services. CARES responded to just over half of all the estimated mental health calls in the city of Madison while staff were on duty, while only 3% of CARES calls resulted in Madison police intervention. The city will hold a public meeting to gather feedback about the program. That meeting will take place over Zoom on December 7th. More information about it is available at cityofmadison.gov.
2: Teachers and parents at Senate Middle School once again went to the Madison School Board to ask that their former principal be reinstated. WISCTV reports that Dr. Jeffrey Copeland was fired just weeks into the school year after accidentally leaving a voicemail for a potential teaching candidate, saying that the candidate's accent would make it difficult for him to communicate with students. While parents and teachers agreed that his comments were in poor taste, they say that it should not have led to his firing. Many of those present at last night's meeting praised Copeland for his ability to completely transform the culture at the school and swiftly put an end to the behavioral issues the school witnessed last year. Copeland has appealed his firing, and the school board is expected to review his firing next week.
0: Future lawyers may be able to drop the logic games and practice tests. Last week, the American Bar Association moved to eliminate the LSAT. The all-important entrance exams for for future lawyers from the admissions process. The move is, is expected to be finalized in February and could go into effect as soon as 2025. But the UW Law School, ranked among the top 30 law schools in the nation, is pushing back on this change to eliminate the LSAT. In a statement today, UW Law School Dean Daniel Tokaji said the change will, quote, harm efforts to diversify legal education and ultimately the legal profession, unquote. And now on to today's top stories.
2: Yesterday, state officials announced that Wisconsin's projected budget surplus is even larger than expected, coming in at over $6.5 billion. But while both Democrats and Republicans have offered ideas about how to use that money, they have not come to an agreement. WRT producer Nate Wegehow looks at how the budget surplus and tries to find out if the Republican-controlled legislature and Democratic governor are finally willing to work together.
3: The state's budget surplus is projected to reach $6.5 billion by the end of this fiscal year, that is, by the end of June 2023. The projected surplus only includes figures from the state's general funding pool and does not include an additional $1.7 billion in rainy day funds. That's according to a report issued yesterday by the Department of Administration, or DOA, as part of a required fall report on the budget. In that report, Kathy Blumenfield, DOA Secretary-designee, attributed the surplus to prudent and outstanding fiscal stewardship by Governor Evers. Wisconsin found itself with such a large budget surplus by essentially underestimating how much they would take in in taxes, says Democratic Senate Minority Leader Melissa Agard. When the state gets their biennial budget together, experts can estimate the state's costs and revenues, but those estimates are not always perfect.
4: Some things will affect the state's budget, you know, whether it is um, people continuing to spend money, Um, that brings more money into the state, or costs going up, um, that would cost cost us to go into the red.
3: This year, Wisconsin took in more taxes than expected, and state spending cost less than anticipated. According to the report, Wisconsin's financial condition is at its strongest point in state history, with not only a record surplus of funds, but a steady rise in tax revenue even after tax cuts. But just what to do with that $6.5 billion is up for debate as Democratic Governor Tony Evers and the powerful Republican-led legislature offer up different ideas for the money. Evers has called on a variety of different uses for the surplus funds, including a one-time tax cut or even sending a $150 tax rebate to all Wisconsin taxpayers. But Republicans have vocally opposed those plans and are taking credit for the surplus themselves. In a statement released yesterday, Senator Howard Marklin of Spring Green and Representative Mark Bourne of Beaver Dam, Republican co-chairs of the Joint Finance Committee, said the surplus is due to reformed and responsible budgets crafted by the GOP over the past 12 years. They added that the GOP would, quote, fund the programs and agencies necessary for prosperity, unquote, but would also make cutting taxes a priority. Senator Kelda Royce, a Democrat representing Madison, is the newest member of the Joint Finance Committee appointed to the role by Senator Agard yesterday. She has her own ideas on how to help the state with the budget surplus.
4: Well, I think one of the most important things we need to do is to make sure that our public schools are funded adequately. And we have seen decades of underinvestment in public education, and we finally have the opportunity to remedy that. Likewise, our local government governments across Wisconsin are really struggling with very tight budgets. A lot of them have to pass uh, referenda to exceed the levy limits. They're under very tight fiscal constraints, and that translates into a real constraint on the services that they can provide.
3: The current rift between Republicans who control the state legislature as well as the state's finance committee and a Democratic executive branch headed by Governor Evers opens a window to the future as the legislature prepares to meet to write the biennial budget next year. Democrats hold just four of the 16 seats on the Joint Finance Committee. While the budget will first be written by Governor Evers, that committee will then have control to change, remove, or add what they see fit. And while this seems to show that Republicans can make any changes to the budget they desire, Senator Royce says that she has hope that they will still be able to collaborate with each other to address the state's needs.
4: I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're in a red part of the state or a blue part of the state. Our public schools and our local governments are really struggling to meet the basic needs of Wisconsinites, and that's something that we should all be concerned about, and every legislator, regardless of what party label we wear, should do our our duty and provide the funds that are necessary so that we can have good public services and great schools.
3: Republicans on the state finance committee, including the two co-chairs, were not available for comment. The Joint Finance Committee will convene in January to set their schedule for the 2023 legislative session. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Woogie
0: UW-Madison has faced criticism over the treatment of animals in its research labs. The school has received violation notices in the past, but activists say a lax system overall doesn't do enough to compel these schools to alter their practices. Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more.
5: The University of Wisconsin won a recent legal battle tied to accusations of animal abuse within its research facilities. Activists hope that doesn't end the conversation or the scrutiny. The case had to do with the university restricting social media comments critical of certain conditions. Those comments were posted by Maddie Cranzo, who graduated from UW in 2013 and is now an animal rights advocate. Her lawsuit was dismissed, but Cranzel feels what she witnessed while working in the school's facilities as a student is commonplace across the U.S. She says neither school administrators nor those enforcing standards are willing to act meaningfully.
6: The people who are making the decisions are not considering truly the needs of these animals, and that would have to change.
5: Granzo's primary role was an animal caretaker, saying she witnessed deplorable and traumatizing conditions for primates. In recent years, UW was cited by the USDA for violations of the Animal Welfare Act. The school did not respond to a request for comment, but in a statement from 2020, it said similar accusations by the group People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals were misleading and that it takes animal care seriously. Rick Bogle, a volunteer with the group Alliance for Animals, agrees the University of Wisconsin's situation isn't unique. He feels federal officials can do their part by improving their inspection protocols when assessing these labs.
7: Most of them are inspected annually, and annually appears not enough. Sometimes these visits are just a few hours or you know, less than a day, and a place like the University of Wisconsin, there's labs all over campus.
5: Federal officials also did not respond to requests for comment, Meanwhile, Cranzo says universities need to take into account the emotional impact on the people who perform daily tasks in their research facilities.
8: There should be a non-affiliated psychologist or therapist with
6: these institutions that have to check in on workers, especially student workers.
5: Mike Mowen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org.
2: Last year, 1,427 Wisconsinites died from an opioid overdose, according to a new report from the Wisconsin Department of Health Services. That's a 70% increase in opioid-related deaths from 2018, the last time overdose deaths dipped from the previous year amid a generally increasing trend over the past decade. For more about why these deaths are still increasing and for possible solutions, WRT reporter Abigail Levins talked to Dr. Randall Brown, a specialist in substance
8: use and treatment. A new report from the state health department finds that opioid overdose deaths in Wisconsin again spiked in 2021, reaching a high of 1,427 people who died from opioid overdose. I'm speaking with Dr. Randall Brown, a specialist in substance use treatment and prevention. He's a professor at the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the UW-Madison School of Medicine and Public Health. Dr. Brown, thanks for joining me today.
7: No problem. Thanks for having me.
8: Absolutely. Well, Dr. Brown, my first question is about this new report that reached the state health department that found that opioid overdose deaths in Wisconsin again reached a record high in 2021, spiking to 1,427 opioid-related deaths last year. As a doctor looking at that data, what are your first thoughts in unpacking that news?
7: So we're still seeing a drug supply that is rife with fentanyl and similar synthetic opioids. And that's been increasing since about 2017, when we really saw these overdose rates start to jump in our area. Besides those synthetics being present as one might expect, in and heroin and opioid supply, however, it also found its way into other illicit supplies, such as stimulants like methamphetamine and cocaine, where individuals seeking to use those substances until really recently might not have anticipated a need to be concerned about the potential for opioid overdoses that this is new that's contributing some in addition to the just the overall presence of the fentanyl in supply.
8: That's really interesting. I did read a little bit about that when I was looking into this and the whole effect of fentanyl specifically and how that's been increasing in supply. And I know that some reports from the Wisconsin Department of Health Services said that a lot of these deaths were a result of fentanyl-related overdoses. I'm curious from your perspective what's the relationship between fentanyl and something like oxycodone?
7: Fentanyl is much much more potent um, and so it's a much smaller amount to overdose and just given how sort of unpredictable its concentration is in supply it can be uh, just makes the supply really dangerous for that reason because of potency and again it's showing up in substances where uh, people might not anticipate it being there I give the example methamphetamine but they're also fairly really common on the illicit market now counterfeit tablets made to look like prescription tablets that folks might use to get intoxicated, like some of the sedatives or, or benzodiazepines like uh, Prazlam or Xanax or, or other opioids like, like morphine, that but actually contain ingredients that folks would expect and fairly commonly contain fentanyl as well.
8: That's really interesting. That's crazy how, how that works. I'm curious, sticking with that theme of fentanyl for just a second, earlier this year, the state legalized fentanyl testing strips, which had previously been considered drug paraphernalia. Can you talk about how this is something known as harm reduction and other steps you'd like to see local, county, state, or federal legislators take in addressing the opioid crisis?
7: Yeah, absolutely. With um, the availability of technology to test a drug, individuals can use those results to modify use behaviors in ways that might reduce risk, for example, trying to use a lesser amount and getting a sense of effect before using more, um, for instance. Um, and particularly, you know, as we've been talking about fentanyl's presence in things like counterfeit tablets and methamphetamine, um, you know, that make, makes it even more important to get word out about technology like that and be testing uh, substances that that people use that, that aren't just sort of marketed as heroin or, or fentanyl or opioid or otherwise.
8: Gotcha. That's really interesting. To what extent do you think people in Wisconsin are informed of this and how, how might information affect the number of deaths in the state?
7: Good question. So I think in um, sort of specialist settings and people who are working with substance use a lot, um, you know, I think that's out there. Public health agencies and harm reduction services such as syringe service programs um, have this very much on radar and um, have contact with people who use in that sort of context. and so um, I think those organizations have that information and are getting it out there. The extent to which it's sort of getting to to all who need it you know remains. Um, You know, a question while we're uh, coming out to some degree of of pandemic, some trends may have been sort of established during that time that have created some challenges that we're still trying to get out of. Um, For example, uh, treatment was less available and, and less people were accessing it. Um, I think most organizations were able to recover pretty quickly and be delivering harm reduction services without tremendous interruption, Uh, but there may have also been um, sort of changes um, in behavior in the setting of the pandemic that might have increased risk as well, such as people being more likely to use alone, um, which is another important sort of harm reduction message is to to make sure that someone is is present or that that knows the use is going on so that so that they can intervene or um or make contact with with appropriate emergency services and administer naloxone to reverse that
8: that's really helpful i'm i'm curious what your role in a lot of this is like how much are you on the ground trying to help with this opioid crisis what what do you do with this?
7: Uh, so I am uh, in addition to family medicine, I'm board certified in addiction medicine, and so I work in a number of settings in healthcare care um, to uh, work with patients on uh, safer use, positive behavior change. So I'm also giving patients advice about safer use, working to connect them with medications to to help use disorder or other behavioral treatment services. And um, so we, uh, my team and I are working in settings such as at UW Hospital and outpatient clinics to try to connect patients to uh, risk-reducing and, um, and behavioral services like that.
8: Wow, that's good to hear. On a broader scale, I know last year's deaths occurred as the state reached a settlement with Purdue Pharma, the oxycodone manufacturer. Mm-hmm which was accused of deceptive marketing practices that kind of set off the opioid crisis in the first place. And I know Wisconsin is expected to receive $65 million over the course of this next decade. Much of that money will be going to local public health departments. Can you talk about some of the work of these local public health departments and what they do in confronting opioid abuse and addiction?
7: So um, a lot of work being done in the needs to continue is around these educational campaigns to reduce the likelihood of overdose and to make sure education gets out to the public around recognizing an overdose and intervening, um, having naloxone or Narcan, the opioid reversal agent, more widely available, much the way that, say, automated external defibrillators are in public settings where uh, lay people can intervene at the setting of cardiac arrest. Um, naloxone should be similarly available and uh, accessible so that um, overdoses in public locations can be intervened on effectively. And so I hope some of those harm reduction efforts will continue. Also, education, not just to the lay public, but also uh, healthcare providers, getting sort of wider dissemination of medication to help people with opioid use disorder is going to be important as well. A lot of, particularly our rural counties, um, that access is not readily available. Um, And So the more we can get some education out there, which is another thing my my team is involved in, is um, sort of educating people who work in general medical and primary care settings um, around that life-saving medication and getting um, folks more comfortable with providing that service and support to to patients who are, who are currently struggling with their opioid use.
8: Thanks for sharing about that. That's a lot of the questions I had for you. One final question. Do you have any more thoughts on this? Anything I didn't address?
7: No, I mean, I think those are the big things. And I guess, you know, one thing I'd I'd also highlight you know, as you mentioned, oxycodone or or OxyContin. While that's something, you know, back in the early 2000s, that really kicked things off. You know, it's really the the illicit supply now that's that's driving so much of what we're seeing with overdoses and um, and addiction and related issues. And so, that's really sort of where these services you know need to be directed.
8: Thank you for sharing. Well, I've been yeah. speaking with Dr. Randall Brown, a specialist in substance use treatment and Prevention at the UW-Madison Department of Family Medicine and Community Health about a new report finding that opioid overdoses spiked again in 2021. Dr. Brown, thanks so much.
7: All right. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: The time is now 6.34, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful, here with my co-host, Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us.
0: Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal Call Hope Carnop spoke with campus news editor Noe Goldhaber about the Indigenous Student Center on campus and its efforts to make impacts beyond Native American History Month.
9: They appreciate the attention that they get during the month of November, but they kind of hope that the commitment to centering indigenous perspectives and stories and also events extends beyond the month of November.
1: Welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Karnup, joined today by campus news writer Noe Goldhaber to discuss the newly formed Indigenous Student Center Coalition and Native November events. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Noe. Thanks for having me, Hope. Can you give us an introduction to the student group that is putting on events for Native November?
9: Yeah, so the
1: Indigenous Student Center
9: Coalition is a group that is comprised of leaders from several indigenous organizations on campus and um, who all fit under the Indigenous Student Center. And so the coalition is kind of just like a general oversight to ISC uh, director Bobby Skenedor. Um, And so it's just comprised of representatives from different indigenous organizations on campus. And it's also a
1: newly formed group, which is kind of exciting. This year's theme is beyond an acknowledgement. What did the students you talked to say about the meaning of that theme?
9: Yeah, so over the past few um, years, I don't know exactly when it started, but recently um, UW Madison has kind of committed itself to doing this thing called in the land acknowledgement, which means that at the beginning of classes, there's plaques around campus, that sort of thing. They describe that UW-Madison is on Ho-Chunk land. And so the theme this year is beyond acknowledgement because some of the indigenous students and leaders that I was talking to on campus want the university's actions to not just be an acknowledgement, but also be action in support of their communities.
1: What are some of the various events that the organization is putting on during November and what do they mean to students in their communities?
9: The Native November month is Native American Heritage Month, and it starts with a feast on November 2nd, and it's going to end with um, a keynote speaker event, which is really exciting. And then kind of each indigenous organization throughout the month kind of plans a different event. So I know that... Wunk Shake did a corn braiding event last week, and then there's a dancing event from Madtown Singers that's going to be happening on November 22nd. Yeah, so there's just like lots of exciting activities, and I'd suggest that everyone go to the Native November website, and they can, it's on the events calendar for UW-Madison as well, so you can see it there. Could you discuss the
1: purpose of these events throughout the month of November?
9: Yeah, so I talked to Noreen Sukwai, the Assistant Director of the Multicultural Student Center, which is kind of like the larger office that the ISC and then the ISCC is under, and she kind of said that, quote, the purpose of Native November is to uplift our Indigenous student voices and to really amplify their concerns, their issues, and their communities. Um, and so to kind of understand, she also went on to say that like it's important to understand that um, indigenous students and indigenous students in and at Madison are a modern community as well as a historical one and to understand the nuances and the diversities within their community is super important. So,
1: Can you discuss the flag ceremony that was held in early November and its significance especially in the law school context?
9: Yeah so I actually um, talked to Morgan Spawn, who is the president of the Indigenous Law Students Association and so he talked about how on November 4th, um, 13 um, indigenous nations presented their flags or had their flags as a part of a flag raising ceremony, um, which was super special because not only was it 11, the 11 nations from the state of Wisconsin, it was also um, the Winnebago tribe of Nebraska, and then also the Brotherton tra- tribe in um, Wisconsin, which is not federally recognized. So it, was, it included a variety of um, different native American nations, and it's also going in the law school, which Morgan Spawn from Ilsa had a quote, law affects Native people on an everyday basis, so we thought the UW Law School would be the perfect place to essentially be the leader on the permanent flag installation.
1: What did the students you talked to say they want to see from the university administration and the campus overall during this month?
9: So I think a big theme that came up
1: with both of the students that I talked
9: to was that um, They appreciate the attention that they get during the month of November, but they kind of hope that the commitment to centering indigenous perspectives and stories and also events extends beyond the month of November. And that even just like in interview requests with media um, outlets, that people have an interest in kind of the activism and the events that they're doing, not just
1: within Native November. So that was a big thing that came up. Can you describe the current status of the campus master plan and if that's expected to affect the ISC building?
9: Um, so it's kind of unclear at this point. Um, according to the ISC
1: website,
9: in the Campus Master Plan, the development of Block 16, which includes ISC, Mecca, and Zoe Bayless Co-op will displace the current center, but UW Madison is committed to finding a new location for the ISC prior to the start of construction in fall of 2023. And obviously, we know that Zoe Bayless and Davis Residence Hall will be um, demolished within that construction. According to the ISC and representatives from Wookshake. Um, which is within the ISC, it will be demolished. But um, yeah, it's
1: kind of unclear what actually will be happening in fall of 2023. So we're working on figuring that out. Was there anything else you learned from talking to students for this story and anything that impacted you? Um, I think um, Yalia Rodriguez from Wookshake started
9: talking about um, a little bit about the tokenization that she feels as an indigenous student here by the university but also by you know whether that be media organizations and I think I realized that from a journalist standpoint it's um, important when you're engaging with stories that have kind of difficult maybe like larger social implications it's important to like engage with these in like a responsible and educated way and Not everyone does that, but it's important to know that that's like what you're supposed to do. So I guess I kind of learned that a little bit.
1: Is there anything else you'd like to share about your story?
9: I don't think so, but I would encourage everyone to, when they come back from break, think about participating in some of these Native November events and um, yeah, learning from the lovely indigenous students we have on
1: campus. Noe, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Hope. (laughs) Other campus news, an effort to create shared student governance across UW System schools has stalled. The Associated Students of Madison and other student governments at Eau Claire, River Falls, and Stevens Point supported creating the association to lobby the state legislature on student issues like mental health and affordable housing. The UW-Milwaukee Student Association failed to ratify the proposal and eight other student governments decided to discontinue action toward the shared body. ASM Legislative Affairs Committee Chair MGR Govindarajan said ASM is not giving up on a plan for shared governance and said a new draft plan is in the works with more input and collaboration. The Daily Cardinal crunched some numbers to examine the impact of youth voters in the midterm election. UW-Madison issued over 7,000 student voter ID cards between September 1st and Election Day, the cards fulfill photo ID requirements for out-of-state students without a Wisconsin driver's license. The total number of votes cast rose about 30% compared to 2018 in the five city wards that contained UW-owned undergraduate student housing. Four of those wards saw more votes than the number of registered voters reported on November 1st, indicating high levels of same-day registration. Ward 61, which includes dorms in the Lakeshore neighborhood, reported nearly 50% more votes cast than registered voters on November 1st. Earlier in fall, the League of Women Voters registered 1,000 students over a three-week bus pass drive. A member told the Cardinal that the polling location for two large southeast dorms, Celery and Witte, was busy for most of the day. District 8 Alder Juliana Bennett told the Cardinal that young people are starting to see agency within themselves. She said elected leaders need to engage more with young voters outside of campaign cycles. A group of students in an entrepreneurship course created a t-shirt honoring former Chancellor Rebecca Blank. The class involved creating, manufacturing, and selling an original t-shirt. The three students reached out to Blank, who requested that the funds go to the Carbone Cancer Center. Blank is receiving healthcare at the center for her pancreatic cancer diagnosis. She stepped down from her planned role leading Northwestern University earlier this year. One of the students said the initiative comes from a desire to fund cancer research and honor the contributions of Blank during her tenure at UW. As of publication, the group had raised over $500, though orders for the t-shirts closed yesterday. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
2: Thanksgiving is almost here, which means dinner tables will soon be filled with cranberry sauce, mashed potatoes, and of course, turkey. While turkeys are not considered native to Wisconsin, it's hard not to spot these birds in the fall. In an archival edition of Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg talks about the large bird's interesting relationship with people here in Dane County.
6: Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Rehabilitation Training Coordinator for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment and today we're going to be talking about turkeys. Uh, guess what time it is? It's Thanksgiving. So we thought we'd do a fun segment on turkeys, their natural history here in Wisconsin, some management implications and restoration for turkeys, and talking a little bit about turkey hunting here in Wisconsin, and when we tend to see this species at the Wildlife Center. So currently, there are actually six subspecies of turkeys in North America. And most of our turkeys are actually very abundant in southwestern parts of Wisconsin, although we tend to see them pretty much everywhere here now, except for the northern counties. I think the most interesting thing about turkeys, turkeys is that they were actually introduced here in Wisconsin when we had very low levels. They were actually hunted so much in the past that in the 1950s, the conservation department of the DNR decided that they wanted to restock turkeys in our state. And so between 1954 and about 1957, they took 827 birds from Pennsylvania and they decided to release them in the western part of Wisconsin and they started to do really well. And then they decided to have a hunting season for them following that in about 1966 so as turkey populations, after they got reintroduced, started doing a little bit better, they started even stocking a few more. So in the 70s, they actually took another couple hundred from Missouri and they had a, a trade. They gave Missouri some ring pheasants and they gave us turkeys. So we had a couple different populations of turkeys that were brought to the state. And now they've proliferated and done very well. Turkeys are usually found in larger flocks. Most of the time you'll see 11 eggs that will be laid by a female, although only about 50% of those eggs are actually going to survive and hatch. And the hens are going to be most susceptible when they're sitting on them. But you'll see them, I mean, even at the Humane Society, we have our own flock of wild turkeys, usually about eight or ten of them that roam the property and eat the bird seed under our feeders. Sometimes they can get pretty close to people in urban areas. They've definitely adapted to seed feeders in your backyards with what people are leaving out for them. Um, And we've even had some interesting conflicts with turkeys in the Madison area, Um, ones that don't want to move away when you try to get them to move, ones that have jumped on cars, and sometimes even those that have attacked people during the breeding season when they get really upset about their territories. So we know that turkeys and people sometimes have some interesting uh, interactions. The Wildlife Center is always there to help if you have a question about turkeys. But a little bit more about them, um, their, their food habits are mostly eating on your agricultural fields, uh, waste corn and dandelions. They love dandelions, alfalfa, oats, and then seed for sure. They'll also occasionally eat acorns and hickory nuts and other wild grapes and, and foods. But grasshoppers are actually one of the most important foods in the fall that they're going to eat at this time of year. And as babies, the insects are important for the amount of protein that they're going to get so that they can grow. Some really interesting facts about the turkey, I thought these are my absolute favorite, is that the snood length in a turkey, which is the male's gobble, it's associated with male health. So the longer the snood is, the uh, the more healthy that turkey is going to be. And female turkeys apparently like males with longer snoods, and I think that's just the best word to use. So if you can now use snood in a conversation, you can say it's from Wildlife Weekly, <laughs> uh, and this segment. And also, you can determine a turkey's gender by their feces, which I also had no idea about. But it's something that we can use in wildlife rehab when they're younger to figure out which ones are males and which ones are females. Males actually have a spiral-shaped uh, poop, and females is shaped like the letter J, and so that's how you can maybe tell the difference. Something very interesting that you can tuck away in your, your knowledge bank. They can run at the speed of 25 miles per hour, and they can actually fly 55 miles per hour, and most of the time you're going to see a turkey roosting in trees. So if you ever go out to the arboretum and take a walk through the fall, look up, which is incredible to me. If you're there in the early morning, you just you walk out and you see a whole tree full of turkeys roosting. It's the strangest thing because they're so big and they're so floppy, you wouldn't think that they'd sit in a tree very well, but that's what they do at night. They roost up there until the wee hours in the morning, and then they do their little gobbling sounds, and then eventually they go down and they'll start to forage and eat for the rest of the day. So they actually have a home range of over 2,000 acres per turkey. I think that's incredible. And actually even Wisconsin, just a little higher than average, um, is about 2,500 acres. Uh, If you can imagine a turkey roaming 2,500 acres, that's actually quite a lot of space that they they like to have. But I think when they find a really good food source, they'll stay closer to home, and that's when you're going to see them most often in your backyards. So the only one thing I wanted to mention, too, is that during the turkey hunting season, we do have documents available on the DNR website talking about turkeys, the dnr.gov. But also just a note about the USDA's precaution about avian influenza. That is something that has been seen in domestic turkey flocks and has had implications in wild turkey flocks over the last few years. So trying to reduce any risk of exposing if you have poultry at home or pet birds at home, if you are coming into contact with turkeys or you're dressing game birds in the field or you're you're hunting turkeys you want to try to make sure not to if they had it for some reason uh, pass it along to other bird species so there's a really great document that you can look at on the usda website if you are interested in the avian influenza and turkeys something that we have to quarantine our birds for at the wildlife center if we see symptoms of other than that we hope you have a very wonderful thanksgiving and are thinking about turkeys during this time of year we love them and and are happy to rehab them when they need help give us a call if you have questions at 608-287-3235
0: NASA hasn't landed any astronauts on the Moon since 1972, but it's planning to change that soon. That's thanks to NASA's newest mission, which successfully launched last week. Its name is Artemis. This week on Radio Astronomy, host Dan Rybachev and Anthony Taylor break down this, this historic mission.
10: Welcome to Radio Astronomy, I'm Dan Rybarczyk, and I'm Anthony Taylor. Today we're talking about a NASA mission that launched last Wednesday, Artemis 1. That's right. Artemis 1 successfully launched from the Kennedy Space Center after a few months of delays. Artemis 1 is the first test of NASA's new Space Launch System, or SLS. Development of SLS began in 2011 in an effort to replace both the retired Space Shuttle and the canceled Constellation rocket program's Ares 1 and Ares V launch vehicles. Unlike the Space Shuttle, SLS marks a return to conventional multi-stage rocketry, similar to the Saturn V launch vehicles from the Apollo program.
11: SLS actually reuses the solid rocket booster and main engine designs from the Space Shuttle, but is capable of launching a much larger payload. The SLS is designed to be the primary launch vehicle for future flights to both the Moon and Mars. These are the primary goals of the Artemis program, to return to the Moon for the first time since 1972, establish a permanent base on the Moon, and to facilitate human missions to Mars. So, Dan, why is it called the Artemis
10: program? Well, our previous lunar space program was the Apollo program, which ran from 1961 to 1972. In ancient Greek mythology, Apollo and Artemis were twin siblings. So as our new lunar space program, Artemis I is a fitting name. Anyway, let's talk about the Artemis I mission itself. As its name would suggest,
11: Artemis I is the first mission in the Artemis program. The main mission goals are to test the SLS launch vehicle and the new Orion crew capsule in a computer-controlled test flight. On its 25-day mission, Artemis 1 will briefly establish a stable Earth orbit before performing a trans-lunar injection burn. This maneuver will place the spacecraft on a trajectory to intercept the Moon and reach a
10: stable lunar orbit. Artemis 1 will then perform one-half, or one-and-a-half, orbits around the Moon and release several small satellites, known as CubeSats, before firing its engines one last time to send itself back toward Earth. Once the spacecraft begins to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, it will be slowed down by atmospheric drag. Once it reaches a slow enough speed, it will deploy parachutes and land in the Pacific Ocean before being retrieved by a U.S. naval vessel. Unlike the Apollo missions,
11: Artemis 1 is actually an entirely uncrewed mission. As it's designed to test the new SLS and Orion capsule, the mission is controlled entirely by onboard computers and by remote control via NASA. Once the spacecraft and capsule prove their safety on this mission, future missions such as Artemis II in 2024
10: will feature a four person crew. In the long term, Artemis 3 will transport four astronauts to lunar orbit and allow two of them to actually land on the moon in 2025. So the future of space exploration looks bright. That's all for Radio Astronomy. Keep looking up and have a
11: stellar week.
2: And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters tonight were Abigail Levins and Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection.
0: Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff of the Daily Cardinal.
2: Super Dave Lawrenson engineered the show.
0: Nate Wege helped produce this newscast.
2: And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with a noisier patio. Good night.